Hello and welcome to the podcast Shaped By. Shaped By is an interview series brought to you by Murray Edwards College, Newhawk at the University of Cambridge. In each episode, we will interview a member of our alumni exploring the experiences which will shape them to become the women they are today. This series is produced by Molly Gibson, me, Lexi Hoskins and myself, Eliza Gagelli. In this episode, I'm joined by Jocena Cameling. Originally wanting to be a barrister, Jocena studied law and modern languages at Murray Edwards College Newhall in the 80s, though she realised that the law wasn't for her and went on to have an incredibly varied career, disrupting any kind of traditional career path. From beginning in investment banking, she went into fashion journalism, then back into banking where she stayed for 10 years, becoming a director at ING, before leaving again for a role at the European Parliament, and all of this before landing her current position as the head of regulatory outreach for the CFA, which she says is the sum of all her experiences and her dream role. I really enjoyed this conversation as Jocena challenges any preconceived ideas about what the trajectory of a career should look like. I hope you enjoy it too. Welcome, Justina. How are you? I'm really well, and I'm really happy to do this. Um, thinking back to my great college days, so lovely to be here. Oh no, thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. When I was doing some research, Justina, I noticed that in your Twitter bio, you describe yourself as curious, opinionated, and profoundly European. Where do you think those character traits have come from? Well, curious is something that I inherited from my father, who was his whole life very curious. And this led him to very interesting uh, jobs and and life situations. Uh, Opinionated, it must be part of my Dutch background. We're very stubborn people, the Dutch. And we hold fast to our beliefs, um, good or bad sometimes. So it's, it's a good and a bad thing. And profoundly European, because I'm Dutch, have lived in five European countries. I'm married to a Greek and my daughter is is truly European, I would say. You grew up living all over, didn't you? I mean, you, you said you lived in the Netherlands and Spain. I grew up in Spain. I was two years old when I left for Spain. My father worked for Heineken and opened the, the Spanish market. We started up living in um, in a town north of Madrid called Burgos, which is a very small provincial town. But my father built the, the beer factory there. And I, I think I was the first um, non-Spanish girl to go to um, a convent school. And just to tell you how extraordinary all of this was for this small provincial town to have a little blonde girl there. I was Protestant. Um, my parents hadn't baptized me and the nuns were terribly worried about my um, saving my soul. And so they baptized me a Catholic. My parents are very open-minded and they accepted this, but it meant that I became a Catholic and it had, as we shall talk later, a profound consequence for my life and interest. With having lived in different countries, is that something which prompted you to study modern languages at Cambridge? Because I know you studied law and modern languages, so I wonder what was your kind of journey towards choosing that field of study? So I think... um, Tripos is such a great opportunity um, to do uh, a changeover halfway through your academic term. Um, Modern languages is a love of mine. I love literature. I love languages. I speak six of them. And uh, Spanish and French. I loved Spanish and French literature. When I was at school, I I took part in some 
in some literature prizes. I've always really enjoyed that. So it was really um, a fantastic opportunity. I worked, um, I think I had tutorials for Spanish literature and Spanish language under Professor Colin Smith, who was at St. Catherine's, the famous Colin Smith Spanish English Dictionary. And um, I so much enjoyed it. And he, he said, you should stay on, you can help me on the dictionary. Um, and I really hesitated to change. But then um, my parents said, you know, languages is all good, but you also need a profession. So maybe law is a good idea. So I changed to law. It was the reason part of my of my heart that spoke there. Um, I enjoyed the changeover. Um, I specifically enjoyed subjects like conflict of laws, uh, European law, um, uh, jurisprudence. These kind of topics I really enjoyed. Less uh, tort and land law and things like that. That wasn't really my cup of tea. So I think you can always see already there that I wasn't a typical lawyer. Um, but it 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 helped to sharpen my mind, and I think that that was the good thing of doing that combined um, languages and and law degree. And at the time, I think in our prior conversations, you mentioned that you were thinking you wanted to be a barrister. Yes, indeed. Well, once I had the bit between the teeth about law and started discovering the different possibilities, barrister um, appealed to me because again, you get passionate. Um, you defend something you believe in. And I think that's at the core of who I am. I will be very passionate about what I believe in. So I would have enjoyed that part. Um, but it's a long haul to become a barrister. And then was I English enough to become a barrister in the UK? I'm, I'm very Dutch. I'm very continental European. So there was this added um, issue that I, I said to myself, do I really have that? And then I think what happened to me was that in the milk round, um, there were several banks that came to speak. And at that stage, I said, well, I don't know. So I went home after graduating, not really knowing if I wanted where I wanted to go into. And I played also with fashion. Um, something I didn't tell you is that um, I actually had a job offer. I think it was from Jaeger. Um, yeah, uh, to become export manager. And I thought that was really good. And then the job fell through, which was a real um, bummer for me. And it forced me to think. And then I said, okay, in the mill crowd, all these banks, they were interested in me. So I wrote to, I think it was four investment banks, merchant banks in those days. And um, several of them had an offer for me. So I said, okay. And I remember my interview in, in Morgan Grandfell, it was. The end interview was with eight directors in the partner's room, all very formal. And they asked me, I said, so what do you know about economics? I said, nothing. Don't ask me that. I said, that's not where you're going to hire me. I said, you're going to hire me for, you know, my drive, my, my international culture, my inno 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 innovative spirit, but definitely not economics. I know nothing. Uh, and I've always believed that when you apply to a job, you should never pretend um, because you fall through very quickly. If I had said, oh, yeah, I read about economics in the press, well, I would have fallen through. Why? And why should they recruit me? There's so many economists out there. Just be who you are and you're good enough. And so you did choose to go into investment banking and you're working in London. And how was that? Well, it was London pre-Big Bang. Um, so it was 1984, and it was still very traditional. We had a liveried um, uh, gentleman coming around with coffee in the morning. 
Um, it was lunchtimes, boozy lunchtimes, signing, for example, bondage. I used to work in the bond origination department and um, it was great fun. You know, it was all nighters at the, at the printers bringing out bond prospectuses. Um, it was a great team. I mean, there were people in there who um, had studied um, philosophy, uh, theology, um, there were historians, you know, there was a bit of everything. I, th I don't think there was a single economist there. And I think that is a very big difference with banking uh, and finance in general today. We should go back to having people of diverse backgrounds. Um, in fact, some of the research at CFA Institute into the future of finance is showing that we need different profiles because you react differently to crises or opportunities. If everybody thinks the same way, you're going to end up with a problem because you cannot find the solution. Whereas different people in, diff in, in, in groups are able to find solutions. And I think that's what I really enjoyed. The thing with investment banking that it's obviously known for and what puts some people off is are the all-nicers, is the amount of hours that you're expected to work. How did you find that as a grad? I didn't mind. I had so much energy. I still have too much energy. <laughs> uh, I mean, you're 22. Uh, you're living in London with not that much money because as a starting banker, you don't get that much money. But we used to party all the time. We had a fantastic group of friends. Um, I was living with an Irish girl who was working for a stockbroker. And um, we used to be very used to staying up late, working and then going to a party. And then I, I think for one stage of my of my time at Morgan Grenfell, I was put to onto the trading desk, the bond trading desk to take positions. Now those were the days when it wasn't automated. And so I had to do, do the manual positions of the bond portfolios, which was really quite complicated for someone who doesn't like numbers, which is me. And so I used to sweat um, profoundly when I had to do this every single morning at 6.30 in the morning before the traders came in. You know, you learn from doing things that perhaps sometimes you're not good at because you understand what you need to do. Uh, and it was the same for me. I, I learned a lot from that. Now, I know that you also had a big career change following Black Monday, the stock market crash in 1987. And you didn't lose your job, but you decided you didn't want to continue working in investment banking. What was your thought process at the time and how did you pick yourself up out of that? So Black Monday um, was in October 1987. I had just, I think I, I, I went on a secondment to the Paris office of Morgan Grenfell in 1986. And that was great. I mean, can you imagine a junior banker being given this uh, opportunity as an expatriate, getting a better salary, um, apartment paid for in Paris? I had a wonderful time. And Black Monday came and my whole division back in, in London had disappeared. But they, I think they probably forgot about me because I was based in Paris. And so they didn't fire me. They got me back to London to work in Project Finance. Um, which was a very male environment with, you know, very long time horizon projects um, uh, like nuclear power stations. You can imagine uh, very weird world. Um, and I stayed there, I think, for a year and said, no, this is definitely not me. Um, and then I, I was talking to some friends and one of them I had um, gotten close to. He and I did a, a traineeship at the European Commission before. I joined the, the uh, Morgan Grenfell, and he was an American working in Paris, in um, in fashion in the fashion journalism world. 
And he said, I think you would suit this. Um, and so I said, okay, this is another side of me. I'm young enough to do the change. Um, and so I decided to take the change because there were very few jobs in banking at that stage. It was all really rather desperate. And I said, I'm, I'm young, you know, why, why not? Um, I, had, I wasn't married. I, I had just started in banking and I thought it was a good opportunity to learn. And so I, I went to Paris again and was a fashion journalist and a publicist at um, Fairchild Publications, which was a group um, of American uh, trade journals. So Women's Wear Daily, which for those who, who know about fashion will know it, it's like the Bible of fashion. You know, they when they publish reviews on, on uh, fashion shows, it's read. And if you're in, you're in and out. And we used to get Yves Saint Laurent calling saying, oh, God, you know, I'm out. I really enjoyed that time. Um, and I, I did that. And um, then I, I went to Spain um, and worked for them there uh, uh, out of Spain. Um, and that was really enjoyable because the Spanish fashion market was developing. Um, it was just great, you know, meeting all the designers, um, talking to companies that were growing. I remember talking to Inditex, which was the holding company of Zara. And I could see they were growing and they had a fantastic business model. And so I wrote about that. And I, it's just such a pleasure to see these things coming to fruition and seeing Zara, you know, global and, and how it's managed. So very, very enjoyable. And then I went to Italy and there I said, OK, do I really want to stay in this? And then I went on holiday uh, to Brussels, where my family was based at that stage. And I met my future husband at a party. Now, again, it's, it's so funny because I always say when people say, how come you married a Greek? I say, well, I met him at my parents place, which is true. Um, he came as a friend of a friend to a party. My parents said to my sisters and me, oh, you can bring lots of people in. And he was the Greek that was coming. And I married the Greek and so stayed in Brussels. And of course, Brussels and fashion at that stage, the, the Flemish design had not really um, pushed through. Um, and I said, OK, let me think about what job to, 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 to take. And then I looked both at um, uh, doing an exam to become an administrator in the European institutions but that's a very long haul and it's a very very low pass rate and as a quick thing um, I was teaching English to all sorts of professionals and one of the uh, pupils um, was a, a trader in, in 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 the dealing room of BBL which was part of ING BBL is a Belgian bank this trader took me into the, the dealing room to meet some of his his colleagues and I heard someone talk about Italian clients and, uh, and she was going to on a visit to, to visit some clients. And I said, why didn't you visit these companies? And I named some other companies for her. And she looked at me and said, how do you know this? And I, so I started explaining what I'd been doing before. And she, she loved my sort of different career and different uh, changes. I said, you sound like the person that needs to be um, in the trading room. And so she got me to see her boss. And the boss said, yeah, I'll take you. But he said, because you've changed your fashion, you're going to start all over again. So I had to start as a graduate entry again, which was, you know, several steps back. But then I told him, I said, OK, I'll do it. But if I'm good, you promote me every six months so that very quickly I'm back up to up to speed. And that's what what we arranged. And so I did. I got promoted every six months and um, very soon I was back to where I should have been. And I think that shows, you know, you need to be flexible, you need to think outside the box, and you need to take opportunities where they come.
who would have thought I would have got my job from teaching English? Opportunities are there. You kind of put yourself in a box, don't you, that your career is like in a certain industry, you can't deviate from that. And you've actually managed to go from investment banking to then to fashion journalism and then to English teaching and then back into banking. I think that is incredible. Could you tell us a bit about your time at ING? I know you rose through the ranks to become a director eventually. So you must have progressed very quickly. I progressed very quickly. Um, every six months having a promotion is fantastic. And then, you know, in the bank to become a director, to go into the director and sort of managing director level, you need to uh, do exams. That was how it happened. So you need exams to test your capacity to manage to think quickly, um, to deal with difficult people, to deal with complex issues. And all this is sort of analyzed by psychologists. So I had, a, I think, three or four days offside where I was tested. And I think my, even my boss was surprised by the result. He said, oh, you know, you've done fantastic. You are both tactical and strategically. And I think he even did believe it, but he knew my personality a little bit. So um, I think it, it, it was a great moment for me at that stage to realize that how I felt and knowing what I could do, and that I can be both managing hands-on, but also strategic thinking, and that that came out. And so that was fantastic. And being promoted to director as one of, as the only woman uh, as a director within the dealing room arena was really quite special. And um, it was a challenge. I mean, it was a very, very stressful job. Um, because we had, of course, the dot-com crisis. We had several, you know, the, the several crises. Is the, uh, um, you know, we had the hedge fund crisis in '98 and some of the emerging market debt. And this was really a stressful time. There was also a time when interest rates became low. The bank was trying to find other ways to gain money than rather than transformation. And so um, <clears throat> they were selling, for example, derivative products um, through the retail network to uh, retail clients, which at that stage was highly speculative. And so as head of all the different sales teams in, in the dealing room, I said to the legal department and compliance, I said, we need to set up a deontological code for these advisors in the retail network to understand what they're doing, because they were advising uh, people who were longtime clients of the bank to buy interest rate currency swaps, sometimes remortgaging their house because it was such a safe bet you know, big situations that really could have imploded and exploded. Um, and so writing that code was the first start. And actually that experience served me when I then ended up in the European Parliament during the financial crisis and trying to take a regulator's approach and see, you know, what we could do to, to structure the finance industry better, to avoid mis-selling, to avoid abuse of trust, etc. I think it's really important to just touch on the fact that you're the only female director in the room. I mean, I know that you speak at conferences quite often and including those which advocate for more women in banking. So I'm sure you've been asked this question many a time. Um, But what advice would you give to other women who are trying to progress quickly in a competitive corporate environment? You know, it's very hard. And in fact, I did an interview, um, which I take. Uh, I think onto our CFA website with um, a fund manager who had been 40 years in in the business and she and I both agreed that actually we've regressed I hate to say it but I think opportunities for women um, regressed I think it's getting a little bit better 
there again because people, um, especially COVID, is showing that you can look after children even though you're working, you know, and perhaps there's also more sharing between partners. Um, and this is changing. It's more challenging also, of course, but there are, you know, the flexibility of work as we're starting to experience is going to help women. From my time in the European Parliament, um, seeing how sometimes politicians really push uh, for women to, you know, on board to have a certain percentage, etc. Is that really helpful? I'm not sure. What is far more helpful if um, the conditions allowing women to choose whether they want to be home in, for example, I think it's Denmark, schools uh, finish later and all the after school activities can take place in the school, which means that you can pick up your child at six o'clock or six thirty. Well, that's a hell of a difference here in Brussels. You have to pick your child up at three o'clock in Italy. It's even earlier. And in Greece, they take long, long holidays because of the heat. So from June to almost half September, children are on holidays. Well, how do you want to work with that if you don't have proper support? And I think for me, um, it's far more about creating the support mechanism, which is why I say COVID has helped. Because we are home, in a way, we've been able to manage. Um, not, you know, it's not great having your child schooling from home, but at least you can you can work and you can you can manage. So I think this is teaching us in a different way. And I think this is this is probably the, the biggest revolution for women um, because we needed that. I mean, how challenging um, it was for me. I remember I had my girl very late in life um, because it was difficult. I had many issues. I, I, I took treatment. Um, even that didn't help. And they told me, oh, you probably will not have a child. And when I was undergoing treatment, I told my boss in the bank at ING, um, and I said, listen, you know, I'm undergoing treatment. It means I have to go for injections and all sorts of things. And he started bullying me because he didn't want that. And that shows you that conditions are, are not good, um, you know, because there was a lot of stress in the bank. You had to perform. And if someone was performing less because they had all these treatments and whatever it meant I came into the bank sometimes 9.30 instead of 7.30 when I went to the European Parliament when I got pregnant my boss um, in in the in the department um, got a sofa for me in my office because she said you need to rest at lunchtime and you close your door and you rest how different can that be so getting into the European Parliament probably enabled me to become pregnant. But the thing is, sometimes we have so many issues we have to deal with. And if you're in a crisis, remember that um, employers will say, oh, well, let's employ a man in a crisis because at least he's not going to go off and have children. I remember when I was trying to employ a pregnant woman in the dealing room, um, she was going to be in one of the corporate sales. She was Norwegian very experienced, had worked as a corporate treasurer for several Norwegian companies, uh, knew the markets, um, spoke four languages, perfect, uh, especially, especially for the Scandinavian market. So I went to my big boss and I said, listen, I've got the perfect candidate. He said, oh, great, let's see her. Then he realized she was six months pregnant. And he said, oh, Josie, we can't employ her. She's going to be off for four months. We can't possibly employ her. I said, listen, <laughs> she's perfect candidate. And I couldn't take her because of that four months, right? That shows you the mindset. And I think this is something that women have to face. 
and I think that's why uh, turning to finding the solutions is 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 going to do the the big. That's why I say COVID is is probably a good opportunity. So I know that this you were challenged with this again in 2011 when you decided to take a break from work for two years you've been working as an economic advisor for the European Parliament um, and then you took two years out of work and in our previous conversations you know people you said that people were saying you were mad to do so um, could you tell us a bit about that yeah you know um, I was 50 in 2011 and I had a child a uh, five-year-old child and I was married. I think I need to spend time with my daughter. I have one. She came to me almost by a miracle. So it was a good, she was five years old. It was a good time to help her with school and be present in activities. My husband had a very um, heavy job, um, so he wasn't home a lot. And um, I decided to do it. And I had such a belief in myself because Way back when I was at ING, before I went to the European Parliament, I had already decided what I wanted to do um, it for the rest of my career. I, I, was, I took a look. I said, I'm based in Brussels. Banking is going to change profoundly. It's, going to, it's being affected by digitalization. It's being affected by financial crisis. People come and go. Um, I need to find something stable. What's stable in Brussels is the EU institutions. But I didn't want to work for an EU institution permanently because it, I don't have mindset. What I did say is I need to combine my banking experience with my regular from the European Parliament. And that will make me into someone who's a specialist in banking, but knowing the EU institutions from the inside out. And so I could do the sort of job I'm doing now. So I always had that in my mind. And I said, you know, after two years, I'm sure um, that that will put me in the right jobs. And so I took my two years off. And for a year, uh, the first year, I just really spent it with I was the the best mum at the school because I would volunteer for every single exit with the children. I think I did everything. Um, and then um, the, the second year, I, I started a slow look at where I wanted to be. I remembered um, several companies that in my time at the European Parliament had visited me and were, had been interested in me. And so I just wrote to them, I said, listen, I'm looking for a job in EU affairs uh, but from the financial services perspective. I think I wrote eight letters. I had five in and three job offers. So that showed you I had really been targeting the right niche, the right corner. And there weren't many people like me who had that long experience in financial services, who had been a regulator for six years, who spoke six European languages. There weren't many. And that enabled me to position myself for that job, even though I was 50 at that stage. I love something that you told me earlier. Um, you said that your CF role is your dream role. Um, and I hope you don't mind me saying, um, but you are 60 years old and it's now that you found your dream role. So, and you said that this is the sum of all your experiences. So I was wondering if you could explain to the listeners how it feels to now be in your dream role after having such you know, a vast career. Um, but what is it about this role that is so special for you? 
So this role combines my capacity for innovative thinking, uh, thinking outside the box, uh, trying to find solutions for fair and efficient markets and investor protection. It combines my love of meeting and, and um, broke, breaking sort of down walls of communication between people. I love doing that. And um, it's bringing together people to think about a common topic. Um, it's my love of fairness, and which uh, which is why the job I do is focusing on ethics. So it it really for me is a job which combines all my skills. I love speaking in public, um, and for years I didn't have a voice because as an advisor in the European Parliament, you don't have the voice. The politicians have the voice, and sometimes I would get very frustrated thinking. I can speak. I, I know what I want to say. And I couldn't. And so now I have my voice. I speak. And very often, and I take up positions, I'm not afraid to do that. Uh, and so it's, it's, but at, at the same time, you, you can only come in this with all the experience you've had before. I mean, sometimes, of course, people get their dream jobs very early on. And that's great. But for me, I probably had to go through all these changes to understand who I was, what my strengths were, and what my failings were. And I feel so strong now, nobody can take it away from me. Uh, and and so I, I feel wonderful. I love that. And I think it's um, really good for people to hear because I think that we need to challenge the assumption that you should go out of uni to your dream job or you should, you know, you should be in it by the time you're 25, 30. Because I just don't think that's the case for many people and it leaves people feeling a bit deflated. Um, so it's very reassuring to hear that, you know, you found this after having gone through so many twists and turns in your own career. Alongside your work at the CFA, I know that, your love of ethics has kind of prompted you to do work with different organizations and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that and what that's led you into because I know it's led you into some really interesting kind of uh, paths. Yeah so remember at the beginning of our conversation where I told you that by chance I became a Catholic. Well that chance event in Burgos, Spain uh, led me on the path I am today where um, through my work for CFA Institute um, at di different sort of venues and conferences, I'm some academics uh, and also some very senior financial industry figures. And one of them um, said to me, oh, when you're next um, in Madrid, come and look me up. So I said, fine. He was a lovely gentleman. Um, I just retired from a board uh, of, a, of a very large institution. And so I said, yeah, that's a good idea. I always like enjoy meeting new people. So I met him and then he said, listen, I'm the president of this uh, foundation um, that's been set up by Pope John Paul II and that works now with um, Pope Francis on um, ethics um, and finance for the good of society. The foundation itself looks generally to have people in there that you get asked in. Um, you have to be a good practicing Catholic. So that's where my Catholic background comes from. But also you have to be interested in doing something uh, for the good of society. Within that foundation, so there's a lot of talk about the economic uh, issues, some of the climate, we've been uh, discussing um, some of the climate uh, issues, but within the foundation itself, there's a special group set up by the Archbishop of Dublin 
um, and this is called the Dublin process. And there, um, really, we look at finance and how to make sure that finance is for the common good. And this is really interesting because, of course, you know, um, if you have watched um, 10 years after the financial crisis in 2019, uh, there was a letter from the Vatican um, which um, really highlighted the fact that the finance industry still hadn't changed. Mis-selling, abuse of trust was still going on. And of course, you know, we'd been having the Wells Fargo issue in the US. Um, there were several mis-selling, even this year during COVID, we've seen really big issues on abuse of trust and mis-selling happening. And it's true that the, the industry hasn't changed dramatically. And so I think this is a really interesting group to work with. Um, I've met all sorts of academics, um, stakeholders, regulators. Um, and once a year, I go to the Vatican for four days to brainstorm, uh, meet the Pope, meet the cardinals. And um, it's a unique experience. And I think um, it must have been in 2019. Yes, that's the summer before COVID really started. I went to the Vatican and it was a special, I think it was the 10 years um, of, of this foundation. And we were allowed to bring our spouses and, and children with us. And so I did. I brought my daughter and my husband. And my husband, you have to know, is a practicing Orthodox, um, Greek Orthodox. And what happens? We go to the Vatican for those four days. My daughter is, you know, uh, is the youngest to be at this meeting. Uh, she met the Pope. She shook his hands. She wasn't afraid. But we also had the patriarch of Constantinople, the patriarch of, of Istanbul, but Constantinople and Greek Orthodox, um, who came to speak about artificial intelligence, which for my husband was really special. So he went to the Vatican, we had the patriarch, and the patriarch in perfect English gave us an hour discussion on ethics and artificial intelligence, and it was fabulous. So I really enjoyed that. That's part of my volunteering. Uh, recently, I was part of a scientific committee for the Bishops' Conference of Europe um, who wanted to write to Ursula von der Leyen about um, bringing, um, you know, economic recovery. And so, um, again, I, I co-wrote co a paper on that. Um, it's, it's my passion. It's really my passion to use all that I've learned myself, but also to, to, to push for making society function and not have parts of society like finance, which are hugely important, but really making them part of uh, this whole economic recovery. Reflecting on all your achievements and all the experiences that have shaped your career and your life, what are you most proud of? Oh, I'm most proud of um, at 60 open to learning and not being fixed in mind. I think that's what my various changes have taught me, never to fix and isolate myself until I'm 60, I've done it, that's it. No, I, I want to continue. And I have no better uh, example than my own mother who at, uh, at 85 is still going strong and up to when she was 80 worked as a real estate agent. And she was passionate. She started work at 55 when the children left home. And um, she stayed working until her 80s because she really enjoyed it. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a great example. You know, we need to, age is not, um, it shouldn't fix us into a corner and, and that's it. And you're just basically, you know, you're pensioned off and you have no value to society. We have value from when we are born to when we're old. The young also have value because... 
um, I very often say to regulators, you must get young uh, people, whether it's students or even secondary school people into your stakeholders groups, because you're trying to regulate their future especially when we talk about pensions, when we talk about climate change. I mean, the Greta uh, example, of course, it's a lot of hype, but there is, um, there is method in this. Uh, a young person, it's their future, so we need to involve. So young students, get involved, go to speak to regulators, to politicians, move, because it's your future. And, and this is really a key thing. And I think um, we haven't really talked a lot about Murray Edwards, College Newhall and Newhall to me because I was a Newhall um, uh, graduate. Um, but I, I've never met such a wonderful group of, of women as my friends at Newhall. And um, they each have had a lot of different experiences. Um, some have had an easier life than others, but we were all very strong personalities. And um, it shaped me. I think these, these personalities and experiences of my friends, I think um, the college was wonderful also, and that also shaped me. Yeah, it's lovely to hear. And a really nice way to end our conversation, I think. I mean, just before I let you go, back to your very busy schedule, <laughs> I don't want to keep your left to me, um, but, I was just wondering, now we've looked back over your career and the experiences that have shaped you, how do you now define success? Uh, success is finding yourself um, at, at any point in time, happy uh, with the way that you're contributing. Um, I think you need to always feel that um, the best is coming out of you. And I think if the best comes out of you, success comes by itself. Thank you so much, Justina. It's been fantastic to speak to you. It's a pleasure. It's been a real pleasure. And I would say to any, any um, Newhall alumni or present Newhall uh, graduates, and forgive me, I say Newhall, but it's, it's too much in my mind, so forgive me for that. Um, but I'm always open to conversations. I'm always open to talking to uh, anybody who needs ideas. Um, the door is always open and I'm a call or an email away. 